0: New York Knicks podcast, Andre Gallagher. Now I said it. Said if the game is close at the end of the third quarter, now you got a series. Now you got a series. The pressure would be shared on both sides, and you got a chance to win it. Game seven is its own entity. Miami didn't want to come back to New York. They had a shot. They had a chance. Flavoring foul. One-point game. Jalen Brunson balls in his hands. They double-team him. Leave Hart open for an instant. Hart was open for a shot. It was an instant. My first reaction was the same reaction everyone else had. Hart was open the whole time and he wouldn't pass him the ball. And it broke my heart. Hart is no pun intended. Hart had his two baby boys born that day. Oh, was storybook. But then don't pass him the ball because you don't have faith that you're going to hit the shot. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. That's your best. That's Jalen Brunson's best friend. Oh, no. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. But if you watch it again, you see that their initial pass on the double team to Hart would have resulted in an open shot. But Jalen tried to fake. He did a little little shimmy towards Hart and then spun baseline thinking he might beat the two, two guys on the double team. At that point, he had to pick the dribble up the pass to Hart was a little bit more difficult because Bam Adebayo is playing free safety. So now you're making a tough pass over a double team with Bam Adebayo looking for you to make that pass. And at the very least, Bam would have been there to contest Josh Hart if he wanted to on the catch. The only play after he didn't make the pass initially was for him to lead him towards the sidelines with the pass. And then Hart would have had a free look. So I mean, there were options there, and Jalen didn't make the right play. Either way, if he was really, if he really had a lot of faith in what Josh was going to do with the ball, that he would have done that pass initially. But then he saw Julius Randle coming down the middle of the lane, and he said, "Boom! I got him on the cut." Good defense from Gabe Vincent and the Miami Heat. Game's over, essentially, right there. I was impressed with the poise the Knicks showed throughout that game. Obviously, with an emphasis on Jalen Brunson, who's controlling the pace most of the game. You can nitpick on on a few decisions from from Tibbs in that game. Double teaming Butler has gotten a lot of criticism, leaving people open down the stretch of the game. You know, you can look at that either way. You, You have coaches being criticized for not doubling guys. Like not being criticized for not doubling Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum has just as many weapons, probably more so than the Miami Heat do. But people are saying he should have been double teamed, right? So you can you can nitpick on that. I would nitpick on execution. The double teams I don't think were quite as a, as aggressive as they need to be. I think I talked about that in the last. Oh, I tweeted about it. If you're going to double team, it has to be a hard double. You can't you can't give these little soft. You know, token doubles where Jimmy can just pick pick who he wants to throw the ball to. You got to make him make a quick decision. So, or, or pick the ball up, not keep the dribble and, you know, pick apart your defense. You can't let him do that. It has to be a hard double. You have to rush him. I know part of the reason why they don't do it is because they're afraid of him turning a corner. So if you come and you kind of measure your steps, then you can kind of take that option away from him. But once you get to a certain point, you got to go hard. So you can quibble about the execution. Uh, RJ was in foul trouble in the game. You know, you knew fouls were going to come into play. The foul trouble took him out of the game. RJ stepped up in this series, and we'll talk more about it in in, – the next couple shows when we wrap the season up. RJ stepped up in this series. RJ was the prince that was promised when they drafted him number three. He's he's not, you know, all pro, all NBA. He's not that guy. But a guy who's essentially a third option on this team, he stepped up all series long. and On both sides of the floor, you got to give him credit. I've seen some of the best of the best be taken out of the game by Valjo. Just have a hard time getting themselves back into it. And then when he did get back into the game, he just wasn't in the flow. You know, He got stripped by Lowry down the stretch in the fourth quarter. And it seemed like, you know, after a few games in this series, it seemed like they were starting to understand how they needed to protect the ball around Lowry and he did none of it. It was like, you know, reverting to your bad habits didn't protect the ball at all, was too high. um, uh, RJ had gotten to a pretty good deep dip when he turned the corner on most of the Miami Heat guys, but he was standing kind of straight up with Lowry there, and it was just an easy steal for Lowry, and I don't think he does that if he's not in foul trouble for most of the game and kind of out of the flow. You saw a lot of the same from Josh Hart, you know, some good plays, some clutch plays, and also an inability and a hesitance to shoot the ball that everybody has seen, everybody knows at this point. So you saw a lot of that from Josh Hart, even though he hit a big three in the fourth quarter, made some good, some really big plays down the street. But I was once again advocating for Grimes to play because I believe in Grimes as a player, number one, and for the obvious reasons of how the floor opens up when he's out there a little bit more, it makes a little bit more room for everyone else. And when he's not out there, and Josh Hart, I should say when Josh Hart is out there, that is so much less room for everyone to operate and, and make scoring so much more difficult against a team like Miami. That's very disciplined uh, and it has a really good defensive game plan against your team. Right. So Grimes had a shot to really keep the Knicks in the game with a three, <laughs> one of the final possessions of the game. And he airballed it. He was wide open. He airballed it. And that broke my heart. Cause it was like, you're advocating for this guy to play. You think he's going to make plays. You think, He's exactly what the Knicks need in this spot, and then he airballs. He airballs a wide open three, a big spot that could have saved the season. You're pretty much doing the same thing that Josh Hart could have done on that on that previous play when when Brunson, you know, passed him up. You know, so tough spot. I think that Grimes and some of the other young players. Grimes has said that he's a rhythm player, so. When you're playing such a slow pace without ball movement, it's hard to expect him to be sharp. When the ball finds him, especially in a big spot with the season on the line, it's hard to expect that You, you want that from from guys. Or I should say you expect that from guys who have been in the flow of the offense the whole game. You can't. You can't just have guys not touching the ball for long stretches and not letting them play basketball and actually do the things they can do and then expect them to step up at the end. And I think we talked about Sposter and Sposter giving his team confidence. I think I told you about something someone said about Spolster giving his team confidence. I think I think Tibbs probably it might not be his strong suit, but I don't think it's a weak point. I think he gives a decent amount of confidence to these guys. He tells them to shoot when they're open and he encourages them to shoot. But when you don't have ball movement in your offense and you don't play with a little bit more pace, then every possession, it it means everything. It just feels so heavy. Jalen Brunson, he can deal with that. But Quentin Grimes, you know, it's hard to ask him for that. It's hard. And Obi Toppin, it's hard to ask him for that. Every possession means so much because you don't get that many possessions because of your pace. And you're not hitting that many shots. And it just feels, it feels heavy. It feels heavy. It feels pressured. Even still, the Knicks were able to stay in this game down to the final moments. They showed a lot of composure. They showed a lot of fight. They showed a lot of heart. And I, for one, was impressed by it because you see a lot of teams in that situation. You saw it in the other conference. They get blown out in in that game. They get blown out in that game. Up three, one, the Miami Heat are going to come out trying to put the nail in the coffin, and the Heat were, and, the, and the Knicks responded. They responded every time. That in and of itself was impressive. They were they their limitations is that's what beat them across the board, coaching staff on down. That's what beat them. Now Mitchell Robinson has taken a lot of heat, and of course I'm burning the lead here. You know that Mitchell Robinson. Taking a lot of heat. If you watch the way they played with Mitchell played Mitchell Robinson, he's getting boxed out from several positions. You're getting a whole team crashing the boards. You got a guy like Lowry that's under his legs a lot. You know, I think they their discipline, their attention to detail and discipline was nowhere near comparable to the Knicks. Or I should say the Knicks were nowhere near comparable to them. All the little things they did it. All all of the ways they could take advantage of. Of what could be a strength for the Knicks, they they did it, they they made the extra effort to take those away or to or to weaken weaken their strengths just a little bit, and then on the other side they played with pace because they didn't want to face the Knicks half court defense every time. The Knicks should have been thinking the same thing, but there was kind of like a lack of confidence in the Knicks' ability to make shots, and I think that's what it comes down to in this series. The Knicks had an inability to make shots, but Mitchell Robinson. And you're seeing this in the Laker-Denver series. You're seeing a lot of talk about Aaron Gordon being in a dunker spot, which is right on the baseline, basically right right on the baseline where the free throw, the paint begins, right? The lane begins. That's kind of the dunker spot. And the Lakers put... A.D. on Aaron Gordon, who was standing in the dunker spot in game, like part of game one, second half of game one, so that A.D. could double team Joker when Joker made his moves run around. The rim. And it made it very difficult for Joker to score because A.D.'s an incredible defensive player and he's not having to engage him directly. He's coming to help. So he gets the time to help and make Joker's attempt at the rim more difficult. And there was a lot of talk about how the Lakers may have found something with that and Aaron Gordon can't be standing there. You got to find other things to do with him. And in game two, you saw a little bit of that. They moved Aaron Gordon around. They they kept kind of kept AD away from Joker a little bit more. They can still do a better job with it. That's the problem with Mitchell Robinson, right? Because Julius Randle has a, as a bully game, He can get to the front of the rim and he can finish strong if he gets to the front of the rim. But when there's a center there waiting for him every single time, it makes his life difficult, especially in the playoffs where they're not going to blow the whistle quite as much. And especially because his own skill set as an offensive player is not very diverse when he's driving to the basket. Although he's very good at the rim when he got two feet around the rim, he's very good. But if if there's a wall in front of him at the rim, he's not great. He's not great. And several times he tried to drop off a pass to Mitchell Robinson and it wasn't handled. But some of those passes even if Mitchell caught it, he wasn't going to be able to do much with it because they were fouling Mitchell Robinson when they thought he had a dunk. And if he didn't have a dunk, if he had to do anything to to get to the front of the rim outside of just catch it and jump up, he wasn't going to do it because Bam was standing there waiting for him. They always they always had the low man defensively, the corner defensive player come down and get into his legs. So that a guy as big as strong as he is would have a harder time, you know, jumping up and, and getting those boards, would have a harder time fighting for a position because he's not the strongest down low. So those guards and forwards, they got—if you watch got, a lot of them got real low on, not dirty low. I'm not saying that, but they got real low on Mitchell Robinson when those shots went up or when they thought when they when somebody penetrates to the basket just to push him out of the way. And part of Mitchell Robinson's focus when people drive to the basket is to get offensive rebound. He's not necessarily positioning himself to, to get the ball and score. He doesn't have a floater game. He's not going to move to the middle of the lane and get the floater up. He's basically staying in the same spot every single time. And that pass is rarely made to him. And when it is, it's not, not a clean pass. When Randall did it, some of those passes were good passes. Some of them were too hard. Some of them just weren't clean. There was too conge- too much congestion there. And the Knicks don't make the weak side corner pass very well. So with Mitchell standing there, they're always going to have trouble scoring against a team, a high-level team like Miami or Boston, teams that you're going to, or, or Milwaukee, if we're going to fast forward, teams that have good defensive centers, smart defensive centers. And in the case of Boston, they have two in Robert Williams and Al Harford guys who know how to position themselves to make the pass to the big man difficult on penetration and low man defenders that know how to make that a difficult pass and get back to the corner. If the pass is made, we pass the Knicks rarely make. Right? So having Mitchell on the floor hurts Randall offensively. It doesn't hurt Brunson as much offensively because he has an in-between game. It does stymie RJ a little bit, but not as much as Randall because he has a little in-between game. He has a little floater game. Randall doesn't. We saw Randall put up two floaters in the middle of the season. We never saw it again. Having Mitchell Robinson on the floor has its advantages, but they have disadvantages as well. Now, some of that is offensive strategy coming from the sidelines. There are other things they could do with Mitchell Robinson to get him from in front of the rim all the time, but they don't want to do it because he's one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And when you're one of the best offensive rebounders in the league, your coach doesn't necessarily want to drag you from the basket. But one of the reasons why he's one of the best offensive rebounders in the league is because he's only only one of about five centers in the league who are in or near the paint. Almost the entire offensive set. Of course, he sets his little screen on the outside. He doesn't set great screens, so the guards don't necessarily get downhill. They don't find him on alley oops. You know, some of it is the passing ability of the players around him, but some of it is just how he reads, how he spaces those roles. You know, he has limitations. Now, defensively, he's been all world, and he's gotten better and better, and you got to give him all the credit in the world. But the fact that Mitchell Robinson is on the floor can sometimes hurt the team offensively. A team that's pace is so slow that they're always going up against a half court defense of their opponent, and the more they see the same actions all year long. And Tibbs said this: their offense has not really got made too many changes, and some of that is tip tip your hat to them because they're still able to score. In this series, they were still able to score in the 90s without doing anything necessarily all that impressive. They were still able to score the basket a little bit. They were still able to score in a competitive way outside of the two blowouts. And one of them, they kind of came back at the end, but you didn't feel good about them in the game. But because because Mitchell's on the floor, because of that lack of spacing, and then you add Josh Hart to the mix... And now you have an extra defender who's guarding the paint. That's where you want to score. Now, Jalen Brunson, because he has been amazing, was able to almost carry the Knicks to victory in game six and in other games in the series, right? But Julius Randle, and here it comes, his game is just not diversified enough to score under these circumstances. Having a big man at the rim all the time. Having the ISO on the perimeter. Having to pass out of double teams constantly. He's just not good enough. And I just want to say the way that you guys, some of you guys treated Julius Randle, ripping his poster down, writing on the face in his posters like this childish this is grow up. Maybe some of you are children, but grow up. Grow up. I don't care how you feel about how he played. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You don't think he's this. You don't think he's that. He is a man. He's a human being. He doesn't need to be treated like that. Chill out. Chill out. And shame on Kenyon Martin for bringing his wife into the conversation and making that a conversation for national discussion, him going to kiss his wife. Chill out, man. And then I was reminded that he quit on his team. Kenny Martin quit on his team at halftime of a playoff game. Man, come on, man. You know, you can criticize a lot about Julius Randle. Some of the stuff that you criticize about Julius Randle is true for LeBron James. He's taking plays off defensively, not rotating, not giving extra effort. LeBron James does that sometimes, and he always has. He's not LeBron James. Don't get me wrong. But some some of the things that you can criticize about Julius Randle aren't unique to Julius Randle. You know, his body language and his pouting, Joel Embiid does that nonsense, all right? The real basketball reasons for blaming, for blaming Julius Randle that are specific to Julius Randle, he just doesn't have the, the foundation to gain, the foundation in his game to excel against the high-end competition that the playoff offers. He doesn't have the foundation in his game to score and make plays at the front of the rim when there are second and third defenders around. And some of that is the schematic offense of his team. And I think that's lost in this a little bit. And when we start talking about the Knicks going forward, we're going to delve into that. The next show is going to be about some of these trade rumors and and uh who the Knicks should be targeting and and really kind of pushing back on some of the notions of and I said this to Twitter, I said this on Twitter to somebody when when someone said they have to add shooters, I said, Well who are you subtracting? If you're gonna talk about adding shooters, you gotta talk about who you're gonna subtract. Because the core of this roster right now, and of course changes could be made, but that's why that, that's why you have to address it from that standpoint. Because you have to make changes if you want to improve the shooting on this team. It's not just about adding a shooter because the rotation and numbers uh, number of people in the rotation is not going to change. And your core players, if they remain the same, they're still going to be the ones that are on the floor most of the time. That's why the whole Evan Fournier conversation wasn't as clear cut as people made it. I'm not saying it wasn't a good idea. I'm just saying... Evan Fournier was going to take minutes away from someone else until he started getting torched defensively. And then he was going to sit down. Evan Fournier was only going to get a handful of looks from three because the Knicks weren't producing a whole lot of looks from three. Number one, because of the pace they were playing. Number two, they're not going to give those looks to Evan Fournier freely. They're going to want somebody else to play or shoot those shots. I'm sorry. So how many shots are you going to get out of Evan Fournier? Four? How many minutes do you think he's going to play? He gets four shots. At best, he makes two unless, he, unless he's really hot. If you're just going by his percentages, that's not changing everything. What would change something was just having someone out, out on the floor who could space the offense. That would change something. But they had that when Grimes played. But because the Knicks want to win, their teams was heavily focused on having Hart on the floor. And RJ on or and or RJ on the floor and or Randall on the floor, Mitchell or Hartenstein on the floor. And these are the guys that actually hurt the spacing because they're not good enough shooters, specifically Hart in that sense. So maybe you, you would have been able to steal a basket here or there, but fundamentally the issue is going to remain the same because Fournier wasn't going to play down the stretch. Unless Tibbs is going to be real, like, I could, I could definitely see a scenario where he threw Fournier out there down the stretch of a game and said, this is an offensive set. We're going to put Fournier out there. We're going to make sure Grimes is out there. We're going to make sure we have shooters on the floor so that we can score on this possession. Now, he definitely could have done that. So we're not going to sit here and defend Tibbs at every turn. But as a steady rotation player in the series, it probably would have hurt the Knicks because of the way they play defense. Fournier all year long has been a net negative on the defensive end of the floor the entire season. And even when he's played well, it's taken him a minute to kind of get into the flow, as you would expect with a player who's aging a little bit and hasn't played all year. There was a game where he was terrible in the first half. His was a game he had to play. He was terrible in the first half, and in the second half he played much better, like, the Knicks would have needed him in spot duty and spot minutes, and you want him to, number one, get open shots, and Miami's not stupid, and number two, not get torched defensively against a team that had the Knicks scrambling the entire series because of their offense and their attack and closeouts and, and, and being such free and confident shooters. And you're going to put Evan Fournier out there? like That's like a play here, a play there, logically. But there is no question that their lack of spacing and their lack of shooting hurt this team and this team needs to shoot better. But under, please understand that the players, the core players on this team are the players that need to shoot better. So if if those guys are still here, it don't matter what shooting you add to the team, they ain't going to play. These guys got to get better or these guys got to be different. Different guys. Or the shooting the lack of spacing is never going to change. And like I said with Mitchell, you can there are things you can do with Mitchell, the same ideas that people have for Aaron Gordon, doing dribble handoffs on the perimeter when nobody's guarding him, having him set off the ball screens, and and then as soon as he gets the center out of the paint, attack, attack the paint. I, I wish I would have seen that a little bit more of that from the Knicks, but the more you do that. The more you take Mitch away from the rim and the more you take away the strength he has with offensive rebounds. The Knicks offense is suitable for the regular season. I think if the Knicks had a better offense, they would have had a couple more wins, probably. And I think that foundation would have been good enough to win this series. Because they would have had the rhythm and the, the reps running plays and having a certain approach on offense that would have helped them in this series. But because they had such a basic offense all year, they had such a basic offense in the playoffs, I think it hurt them against a team that really didn't have a lot of guys that could even match up with your talent. But but collectively, because they knew your tendencies and they knew your weaknesses, they were able to, with weaker defenders, actually stymie you offensively. Now, let's talk about the good things, because that obviously does some of that fault on Tibbs. Well, some, let's talk about the good things. You see how many points Miami scored in game one against Boston? 120 points. You see that? 123, I think it was. Did they come anywhere close to that against the Knicks? What did I say the whole series? Yeah, the Knicks are making the mistakes defensively. Yeah, they can do this better. Yeah, they can do that better. They can't let this guy get that open shot. Blah, 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 blah. 123 points against the Boston Celtics, who have a chance to win the NBA championship. They were scoring, I think the most that he scored against the Knicks was 111. They were scoring in the 90s and the low 100s against the Knicks. The Knicks defense, say whatever you want to say and give Tibbs credit, the Knicks defense, without having uh, an attentive Julius Randle all the time, without having a great defensive player in R.J. Barrett, or Jalen Brunson. If you compare, again, it's just game one. But if you look at the points scored against Milwaukee by Miami, and you look at the points scored in game one against Boston, they are on some of the best teams in the league. They're putting up 120 points. Religiously. I think they average 120 points against Milwaukee. And the Knicks had them in the 90s and the low 100s. Give the coach credit. Give him credit. You want to criticize him? Give him credit. That's an awesome defensive coaching job against that team. He just needs an offensive coordinator. And if he had an offensive coordinator, he had somebody who was a little bit more imaginative on offense, then it would it would put it would put Julius in a little bit better position. To be effective, but it would still fall on Julius to be a better player. But I just don't think Julius is going to be as good as you need him to be in this system to be effective in the playoffs, period. So a move is going to have to be made. It doesn't necessarily have to be trading Julius. I'm not going to say no, (laughs) because there are other aspects to what Julius is bringing to the table that you just can't like. Okay, the pouting and all that stuff, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. But there are scenarios out there where if you replace the center, and this doesn't mean he's a scapegoat here. It's just to say if you replace the center that is so limited offensively and in his game theory, number one, which also falls on the coach, but his own game theory because he doesn't read, he doesn't read things very well. He doesn't he doesn't present himself very well to make things better, right? And his limitations offensively. With those things, maybe replacing him with someone who's a little bit more or a lot more dynamic offensively and maybe not a complete sieve on on defense would make the Knicks exponentially better. If you can be solid if you can give 80% of what Mitchell is on defense, look at what Miami's, Miami's starting Kevin Love. Kevin Love is a position, positional defender at best. They're starting Kevin Love. Give a, get a suitable, just have a suitable defensive center who can rebound the ball, but has some offensive skills and then mix it exponentially better. They may, not, they may not have to make another change. I'm not suggesting it. They may not have to make another change. That that change alone would have beat the Heat. If Hartenstein was what we thought Hartenstein was, a guy who can shoot some jump shots, (laughs) the Knicks would have won this series. Just that simple change because the the spacing would have been troublesome for the Heat. Look, the Heat gave up. The Heat gave up 116 points in that game. I mean, as the Boston Celtics, we know they're a good team. But they gave up 116 points. They weren't giving up 116 points to the Knicks. And we all know why. Spacing, pace, lack of shooting. Because the Knicks got shots, too. Even with their poor spacing, they got shots and they should have knocked them down and they didn't. All series long. So, I mean, to recap it, I was dead wrong. I didn't think that Miami Heat had a a chance in hell to beat this team. But this team essentially beat themselves. Not to say that Miami doesn't deserve credit. They do. It's just that, that this team's own limitations beat them. Everybody's talking about what Miami did offensively with a bunch of undrafted free agents. But it wasn't the offense that beat the Knicks. You'd think it was because the Knicks are having trouble scoring. It wasn't the offense that beat them. It was the fact that the Knicks could not score consistently. From the three-point line specifically. So, heartbreaking series. But please understand, this Knicks team, they beat expectations in a year. They beat my expectations in a year. This is a... Unlike Giannis' season, which was a failure because he had a goal and expectations and they fell short of it, the Knicks exceeded theirs. And the Knicks are in outstanding position to improve their team. They have assets. They have tradable contracts. They have so much flexibility. Eric Pincus on the Bleacher Report, from The Bleacher Report, he wrote an article about it. I'm going to tweet it out today. The Knicks are in prime position to win a championship for the first time since the nineties. Now they can make a play. Bobby Mark said this on Knicks Fans TV, did an interview. They can make a, they can make moves that can make them a contender, or they can make a move that's just gonna keep them in the play in. They have to be very careful in this next move they make. And they have to be careful, they have to think about players who are injury prone, they have to think about players whose contracts are, are too big, albatross contracts. They have to think about who's going to accentuate the best player on this team and Jalen Brunson. And they have to think about who's committed to winning. And in fairness to Julius, I think Julius just, Julius goes about, he wears his displeasure on his sleeve. And I think Julius's approach to the game is more centered around him than the team. And when he's centered around the team, when he's been a good soldier, for the most part, when the ball is, doesn't doesn't find him and is going through Jalen, he is not effective. And he needs to be more effective. And I think he would be more effective if there was more spacing in the paint. Julius Randle's on a very serviceable contract for what he does. Julius Randle's a hard worker. He's a tough, strong guy. His His lack of focus defensively, his lack of effort defensively sometimes... It's heartbreaking. I don't think it's ever going to get better. I think it's a a wiring flaw. But at the same time, he is full of heart and determination. He just goes about it the wrong way. I think Julius Randle, you can win with Julius Randle on this team if you change other aspects of the team. If you don't change those things, and to be specific, if you don't change – the skill set of the center position that he's playing with, Julius Randle's gonna fall apart in the playoffs. I think if Julius Randle is the number two option, you're gonna lose in the playoffs. And that's not to say, not not to even mention RJ Barrett and how RJ Barrett needs to be consistent in what he does, and Quentin Grimes needs to be consistent in what he does. IQ needs to be consistent in what he does, but we're gonna recap the season, and the next show. This is more focused on the Miami Heat series, which broke your heart as a Knicks fan because you see Miami Heat going there against Boston to win game one. On one hand, it's a little bit of validation that you didn't get run through by a scrub team. But on the other hand, it's like, wow. They, they hadn't scored 123 points on the Boston Celtics. The Knicks could have... Knicks Knicks played Boston all regular season, and we all know it's different, played them well. If the Knicks should just score more consistently, if they just had a little bit better process on offense, they could have beat the Celtics, too. They could could have easily have been in a six or seven game series against that Celtic team if they were able to just figure out a way to score the ball more consistently and match wits with Spolstra in that series. But there it is. Seasons come to an end. Bittersweet. You take the victories. You look forward, knowing the Knicks are in a good place, a better place than most teams in the league. You got to feel good about it. Next episode, we'll break into some of these trade rumors and and what the plan should be for the offseason. And we'll be uh, doing that for a few episodes, because what else are we going to do? Season's over. Sportsethos.com. At Sportsethos on Twitter. At... Eat those nicks until next time.